Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, talking about placing them workers, talking about worker placement games, talking to a master of worker placement, at least in my opinion, Mr. Luke Laurie. Luke, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you. Uh, I don't know if I would call myself a master, but uh, my hope is to master recording this podcast so we can do <laughs> it in one single take. So There you go. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to talk about worker placement games. That's where I, I spend most of my design energy is on worker placement. Yeah, absolutely. And the reason I say masters because you have so many games that have come out or coming out or in the process or in development or you're working on. And so I feel like you have, have really gone through the gauntlet of figuring out how this whole mechanism works, what you can add to it, what works, what playtesting looks like. And so uh, I'm excited to just kind of get your ideas about how this thing works, you know, how the different things you can add to, take away. I mean, worker placement is such a, a general topic. Right? It's a pretty big topic. And so there's a lot to go into. And I'm just excited to, uh, to travel down these roads. But before we get into any of that good stuff, kind of remind people who you are, because you were in like episode three. I mean, you were, it was, you were like an OG of the Board Game Design Lab podcast. You're in like the first five episodes, if I'm uh, not mistaken. And so maybe remind people who you are, how you got into game design, all that kind of thing. All righty. So uh, yeah, my name is Luke Laurie. Uh, I live in uh, Santa Maria, California. And um, I think I've been designing for I want to say six years at this point, seven years, maybe something like that. In any case, uh, currently, I really only have one serious game on the market, um, but I've been involved in the design circles for a long time. I, uh, I have four signed games currently, so I'm going to have uh, two more games coming out next year. Uh, actually, should be three total games coming out next year um, from some different publishers. But for quite a while, I was uh, intensely involved in the League of Game Makers. And so we did a lot of writing and a lot of research uh, over uh, several years. And so that included uh, writing articles on things like how to design a worker placement game. So I wrote a, a pretty extensive article on how to design worker placement games um, something like five years ago while I was working on the original um, Manhattan Project Energy Empire. Um, and that involved looking at a variety of different worker placement games, um, conducting conversations with various designers of those games and looking at keys to, um, developing worker placement games in a way that adheres to some of the norms. And then also builds upon the existing knowledge to innovate and create something that that distinguishes itself in the market today. Yeah, definitely. I think that's one of the main struggles that a lot of people have is how do you make something new? How do you make something different inside of a genre that has been well, it's a well-worn path, you might say, as far as how many games come out just constantly with this mechanism in there. And so let's just talk about different things. First of all, let's get a good working definition. When somebody says worker placement, in your mind, in your opinion, what does that even mean? So, um, yeah, there's some debates about this, but generally the way I see it is I have some kind of player piece that, that I own, um, whether permanently or temporarily, 
And I'm taking that player piece on my turn and I'm putting it out in a shared area to select an action. Um, there are all kinds of different action selection mechanisms, you know, from playing cards to choosing actions from a list, um, placing markers on your own personal board. But what distinguishes worker placement is um, generally that when you place out in that central area, you're somehow blocking other players' choices or potentially changing their choices, changing their options or changing their cost about how they will make their, their decisions. So worker placements tend to be strategic games, but they have an inherent tactical nature to them where every single player that takes a turn will be changing other players' choices. And the nature of that kind of play requires you to have plans and backup plans. And if you're playing with a large player count, backup plans to your backup plans, because things are going to be changing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the main appeals uh, about these games to people is that it's not only strategic, it's also tactical. And it's not only tactical, it's also strategic. I mean, you kind of have the full uh, spectrum of having to plan both right now and, you know, three, four, five turns from now. And like you're saying, the pieces could also be different, right? So there's some worker placement games, your pieces are pawns, some they're miniatures, some they're dice and the dice do different things based on what sides and maybe you have custom dice. And so I feel like it's just like the sky's the limit as far as what you can do in a worker placement game. But let's get into like why, why people love these games. I mean, there's so many coming out. So obviously they're selling really well and people love them. Why do you think people just love these games? Well, I think uh, I think part of it is a sense of familiarity. Um, in terms of designers, uh, you, you hear almost jokes about that worker placements are easy to make. Um, that if you if you want an easy approach to making a game, you just make it a worker placement game, and you take some existing concept of a worker placement game and substitute out different kinds of actions, and bang, you've got a worker placement game. But Building something that's interesting and creative and innovative requires more than that. Um, yet, you, having that familiarity of I'm going to choose an action um, each turn, that, that general concept makes worker placement games accessible even when the multitude of actions that they choose from could create a level of complexity that could be pretty high. So they have a way of paring down complex uh, mechanics into kind of a piecemeal approach. One little worker placement at a time can lead you down this path. Yeah, it's a good point because a lot of these games, you can only do one thing per turn. You can place that worker one place and take one action or gain one resource or something like that. And so you you can kind of limit the amount of information that a player is having to, to work through in any given time. And so in your own experience, is that is that always a challenge in the design aspect of things is like really trying to figure out how do I take this massive amount of information and possibilities and, and pare them down into those simple to understand options? I don't know. I don't know if I think of it quite that way. I think there's, there's a lot of ways to approach um, how you go about designing worker placement, but my, my concept of how I begin a design usually starts with a hybrid of a of a thematic area that I want to explore and a mechanical aspect that is innovative. So I'm always looking at a new way to approach worker placement. Um, and I have, 
I do have my own kind of uh, trademark or um, milestone kind of approaches to how I go about the games uh, that I design, but there are also always some new things. I never want to build the same game twice or uh, reproduce anybody else's work either. Gotcha. So tell me a little bit more about that beginning process. Do you have this idea for a mechanism? You're like, oh, that'd be cool. How do I build something around it? Or do you just start with a theme and like try to put the right mechanism with that theme? Like what is, what is your personal process? So that's the, that's the magic question or the two magic questions. There's the one, which is how do you start? And the two, which is, which is more important, the mechanics or the theme. Right. And I've waded into those, those debates and, um, they're, they're partly personal preference and they're partly uh, looking at just where does inspiration come from. For me, I have games that I have absolutely started using a thematic concept. And I also have other games where I've started from the mechanics. But I don't think where you start is as important as where you finish. And um, as I go about my designs, I usually... I want to focus on making the the mechanical experience as interesting as possible um, because I, like many designers, have experienced that um, when games start to go through development, themes can and do change. Even if, even if I'm very, very into the theme of a certain game and the, and the mechanics seem to have been all evolved from uh, the inspirations that that theme created. In the end, uh, some of these games do get rethemed and come out in, in a form that isn't how we originally designed it. Um, that said, you know, where do designs come from? A lot of times it comes from, I'm in the middle of a game and I think of a new way that this could work. I'm thinking of new ways that things can work constantly. And as much as possible, I try to, I try to build that in some kind of um, functional uh, prototype and see if it really is a promising way to go. Sometimes we find that these ideas that seemed so brilliant in our heads um, fail when they're turned into a real prototype. And then other times it becomes the start of, of the, next, the next great game. Yeah, for sure. One thing I've learned and... and- you probably as well. And hopefully everyone listening to this is no, you know, see no good plan survives contact with the table, right? As soon as it hits the table, it's like, well, that, that didn't work out anywhere close to what I thought it would. And I think that's one, you know, one of the things people love about game design is it's, it's a puzzle in and of itself and trying to figure out how these pieces are supposed to fit together so that other people can enjoy this thing that's in my head. How do I, how do I turn it into a real life thing? And so, all right, before we go any deeper, let's, let's just talk about some general examples of worker placement games. What are some of your favorites and why? Like, why do you love these games in particular? Oh, um, so yeah, let's see. That's that's putting me on the spot a little bit, but I will uh, see. I have um, I draw from a lot of games that are not worker placements in mm-hmm. designing my worker placement games. Um, that's that's part of the challenge in that question. Um, in terms of like you know classic worker placements that I enjoy, I really like Zolkin, um, the Mayan Calendar. I enjoy um, games like Lords of Waterdeep, um, Stone Age. Um, I'm sure there are all kinds of games that I used to play, but wouldn't probably wouldn't pull them out so much anymore. Um, I've got uh, 
I do draw a lot though, like I said, from, from non-worker placement games. So one of my very favorite games in the world is Concordia um, by Matt Gertz. I, I really like uh, Star Wars Rebellion, uh, like games like um, uh, Terra Mystica and the, the new sci-fi version, um, blanking on what that, that one's called right now. Um, yeah, there's just, there's so many games out there and I draw from games. I can draw from a game that I've only played once or only even seen in terms of how it, it inspires my work. Um, but it isn't just worker placements that I will, that I will draw inspiration from. Yeah, absolutely. Now going back to some of the ones you mentioned, Zulkin and Stone Age and whatnot, uh, Lords of Waterdeep. What is it about those games in particular that really stick out in your mind? Like if, if you know, somebody's listening to this and they, they want to make a worker placement, maybe they hadn't played those games. What is it about those in particular that you're like, you need to play these just to understand certain concepts or, or different things about this genre? Well, um, partly, so if we go to a game like uh, Stone Age or Lords of Waterdeep, there you're looking at accessibility. Yeah. There you're looking at a game that almost anybody could sit down and play um, not necessarily win the first time they go at it, but you'll also find that it contains a variety of interesting decisions. And, and ultimately what you're looking at it uh, and what I pay a lot of attention to in my design work is, is how am I going to create interesting decisions for players, these choices, um, these compromises, these trade-offs, and how will, as they're going about making these decisions, how will players interact with one another? How, how much will this interaction be constructive? Will they be working together to create something like in euphoria when you're, when you're building those, uh, those structures in the city and uh, everyone's trying to take part in it in order to not be left out? How much are players going to compete? Um, like like how, um, how tight the spots are when you're playing a game of viticulture, for example. Um, and how you, you really don't want to get left out of a certain action in a certain season before the season passes by. There's, uh, there's so many things to consider um, in design, but really I'm looking at how will, how will players feel while they're doing this? How will they make these decisions? And how will they feel about each other while they're doing it too? Yeah, absolutely. And you bring up a really, really good point about interesting choices. I think that's one of the main reasons people play games, just to have interesting choices and have fun while doing it. But one of the things I feel like is a huge struggle, it's definitely been a struggle for me trying to make worker placement games, is creating a game that doesn't have too many just obvious choices, where it's it's my turn, I look at the board and go, oh, obviously, this is the best option. Like trying to avoid that, because you, you don't want players to feel like the game's playing them. You want them to have, you know, two or three or more options to say, okay, I could do this and I could do that. Okay, I do this over here and get this benefit or this resource. Do I want to do that now or in this turn or do I wait? And so what has been your experience of trying to, you know, make sure your games had really good choices that weren't just obvious choices on a player's turn? That's a, that's an interesting point. So um, in the article I wrote a long time ago, it's like a multi-part article on the League of Game Makers website. Um, and it's about how to build a worker placement game. If you just type in Google how to build a worker placement game, you'll get this article series. And I did talk about you can actually assign values to different worker spaces. And there are ways of kind of um, creating a math, your own math for how the value of these things work. And if you're creating a kind of a static game, a static worker placement game, 
that's something you need to take super seriously. But in most of my designs, I've moved into the, the space where how you place your workers and where you place your workers, the value of the different choices changes during the game. Um, and this can be done by creating spatial situations so that the workers are placed and how their adjacency works. Um, you're next to this, but you're not next to this other thing. Um, it can work in terms of how different actions will necessitate varying costs depending on circumstances. Or in um, my recent work with Dwellings of Eldervale, the the tokens that you take, the resource tokens that you um, will acquire as you go about exploring Eldervale, they they vary. And so you might go into a forest realm and you take the the tool token from the forest realm. But after you take that, the next player places there is going to get gold. And so there's an evolution of the um, of the availability of the resources. But also as you go about placing, you are potentially acquiring risk in terms of what's adjacent and what other players are doing. So it's it's one thing to look at an approach that you're going to try to create a, a fair game and a balanced game that doesn't have too many of these moves that are just the obvious good ones. But one of the ways you can get around that is you look at creating more variability in the types of actions that come up. And so that an action might have a uh, certain value at one point in a game, but at another point in the game, that, that same action might actually have a lower value or higher value depending on the circumstances. So it's about those interactions that creates that real, um, it's more about creating more interesting tactical choices as the game evolves and creating a sense that the game itself is, is evolving. It is progressing and changing and you need to make adjustments for that. Right. I feel like that's a really important thing for designers to take into account is that, you know, players don't want to do the exact same thing on turn 20 as they did on turn one, necessarily. Like, you don't want to feel like the game is just flat. And it's like, well, why did this game last an hour when it really could have lasted 20 minutes? Because we just did the exact same thing over and over again, you know, wash, rinse, repeat. It's like, well, that's not super fun. And so if you can make the game change and the values of these things change and be a little bit more nuanced, more contextual, it kind of keeps players a little bit more engaged and have to think through longer term strategies because they know on turn 20 is going to be very different than turn one. And so I think that's a really cool you know, thing to, to take into account when you're designing. Another thing I've seen is games that will actively increase the values of things that aren't getting chosen. So like if certain uh, worker placement spots or cards or whatever aren't, aren't taken by players, then the game will add money or resources to those places to kind of entice maybe in the next round, you'll say, well, I don't necessarily want to do that, but I really need that extra $5 that I would get for taking that, that's our, that the game added to it. So I think that's another cool way that the game can kind of increase the value of things you know that maybe aren't as uh, normally taken as, as other things. Yeah, that is one approach. And um, so you brought up the players who don't want to do the, you know, the same thing and that uh, people yeah. like variability. And that's, that's kind of true. Um, but that also gets into, you know, our comfort with playing a new game comes in part by the similarities of this game to other games we've played. But our interest in this new game that we play comes from the innovations and the differences 
And some of those can be aesthetics and artistic and themes, uh, but some of them um, can be mechanical. And so as we are looking at making games for a market, we are looking at um, having some degree of familiarity, but you, there really are players out there who really do want to do the same thing on turn one as turn 20, as long as they win doing it. Um, <laughs> so you do have people who, who they don't really necessarily want those new ways to be that different from the old ways. And um, for us as designers, that becomes a challenge because if we create something that's, that's too innovative or too different or goes against convention, uh, there can be pushback and controversy um, in terms of they want things to feel like things they're used to. Right. I think you have to be aware of just how many new things are in your game and, and making sure you don't have too many that it's overwhelming. And also, you know, a lot of things we do in rule books and, and just teaching games, we rely on games that have come before, you know, where you say, hey, it's kind of like Dominion because you got deck building, but then it's got this new extra stuff on it. Whereas if Dominion was like, you know, this brand new totally new way to play and then all these extra things where we've kind of gotten to now with deck building, it's like, wow, this is just maybe too much going on. And so we we rely on kind of the foundation that's already happened just in our normal gaming culture, which can also be super hard for accessibility because new players are coming in. And so sometimes I think we forget that a lot of people still haven't played any of the games that we've played. And so it's something to, uh, to just kind of keep in mind. And that brings up um, something that makes complex games easier to access is when the complex game ramps up itself. So um, I, I, I think I remember you talking something um, about that with Elizabeth Hargrave in your interview with her where, you know, um, a game like Wingspan, you, you start out with a blank mat and the game increases in complexity as it goes. And I tend to design games like that also. You know, you have your, you have your player mat, which is basically provides you with the basics. You start with the basics and you may have a deck of a hundred unique cards, but none of them are there for you right up front. Um, terraforming Mars does this in a really great way. You know, the board's empty. You only have to look at a handful of cards. The first time you play, you, you don't know the full deck. You, you can't make decisions based on all of the deck that's there. You just, you just go with the, the handful of information you have and you, you make the best of it. And as the game progresses, its complexity increases and that allows you to kind of learn the game as you go along. And so I try to do some of that with my designs, um, with Energy Empire. Um, you know, you start with basically no engine whatsoever with a handful of resources and you, you build up to an engine that can just produce all kinds of resources. Um, in uh, current design dwellings of Eldervale, it includes that kind of um, that tableau building where you can build up all this stuff. And it allows you to get these uh, more advanced workers, a uh, dragon, a wizard, and a warrior uh, that may have special powers that allow you to go beyond uh, just a simple kind of worker placement and do all kinds of different stuff. But it ramps up slowly in a way that you can learn it as you go. Yeah, absolutely. I think my favorite example of this is Concordia. I think the Concordia rulebook is like four pages, if that. 
And then, but the game has so much complexity that it comes out in those cards and those roll cards that you get to, uh, you know, bring into your your hand and do different things with. And so, you know, basically, as a new card comes out, you're like, hey, what does that do? Oh, okay. And you get to learn that new rule or new mechanism, new way the game works as the cards come out. And so, you don't have to spend, you know, 30 minutes teaching the game. You can spend five minutes teaching the game, and then you kind of ramp up and learn the new stuff, the cooler stuff, the, the more complicated stuff as the game goes. And so, I think that's a really cool uh, way to do things. And that um, that face up card market is a big part of that. Um, yeah. And Concordia is one of my favorite games of all time. Um, the original Manhattan Project, um, definitely one of my favorite games of all time. And they both have that that open market where, as a new card comes up, everybody around the table can talk about it and figure it out collectively. You don't have to. Um, you don't have to draw that card and secretly figure it out and, and right. then struggle with it. Um, that, that is a challenge in terraforming Mars, but in, in games of those open markets, everybody's kind of on the same page as long as they're paying attention to what's available. So dwellings of Eldervale does that, um, where you, you have several different decks based on different, elements air earth water fire light darkness order and chaos and a handful of those are going to be used in each game but there's so many cards they're they're all unique they all do different kinds of things some of them in similar ways but no one has to learn all of them up front instead everybody plays with the top card on the deck first and they're all very similar they're called doorways but then once you get past the doorways once players you know buy those cards, add those to their tableaus. Then you start digging into all the unique cards and you really only need to learn two cards at a time. Everybody at the table can talk about them, figure them out, and then decide whether or not that's something to pursue. So that gradual kind of scaling up is key to complex games. Yeah, for sure. And another thing that that I've run into a lot, and this is something to, just to take into account if you're designing one of these kinds of games, if you have a system where players draw cards and then have new rules or new mechanisms or whatever on the cards, and it's hidden, then you're going to run into a situation where the player might not know what the card does, but if they ask what it does, all, everybody knows what card they have. And so it creates this really odd situation mm-hmm. where you're like mentally trying to process like, what does this do? I want to ask what it does, but then they'll know my strategy. They're going to know what I'm going to play. And so it's just a, it's not a great place for a gamer to be. And so as a designer, like what can you do to mitigate that? And sometimes some games, it just is what it is and you just have to live with it. But if you can kind of get rid of that in some ways and make the game more simple to understand, make it more general where everybody kind of is learning together as opposed to you know, people in individual and their cards in their hands. I think it's just something to, uh, to think about. And when it is that kind of hidden information, um, it needs to be absolutely clear. And right. um, we also have that in Dwellings of Eldervale because you have, you have little magic cards that are able to kind of modify situations. And basically you have a hand of rule breakers and special scoring cards all the time. But a painstaking detail uh, into... Um, I should say painstaking effort into creating language that everyone could easily understand when they read these cards. So it's usually just one sentence, maybe two sentences of super clear language um, allows you to not have to ask those those questions that are going to give it away. Um, one of the things that we did on those cards even is there's there's really a minimum amount of symbols because symbols are great when everybody agrees what they are. But with that hidden information, 
Um, you might have that, well, when can I use this card question? How do I use this? So each of these says in plain English exactly when you can play the card right on it. Yeah, it's another really good point. And going back to what we were talking about just a moment ago is uh, another thing I've seen games do in a really cool way that kind of expands the options is certain certain worker placement spots or certain cards or you know, certain parts of your player board will open up as the game progresses or you have to earn it or you have to pay for it. You have to spend a certain number of resources to gain those extra places. Or if you think about Scythe, whenever you take over the factory in the middle of the board, then you get this extra worker placement spot that you can now do extra things and kind of get some little bonus actions, things like that. So I think that's another cool way for uh, designers to add more uh, depth, more complexity to a game that's going to, it's going to show up later and it's going to be earned. And so a player has that, you know, get that kind of endorphin rush of earning this new place that other players maybe don't have or don't have yet. And they can Mm -hmm. do some different things and have more options. I think it's another way you can add complexity, but you can do it on the back end as opposed to the front end. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, that leads me into thinking about, um, you know, when we're thinking about building worker placement games and if I'm, talking right now to any any new designers out there, designers who are tinkering with worker placements uh, in their garage, so to speak, right now. Um, it's great to think about ways of combining worker placement with other mechanics out there or other concepts that either haven't been done before or have been done in a way that maybe you didn't like or didn't uh, wasn't thematic enough. But so, for example, um, there's certain kinds of design constraints that I tend to stick to, and and you'll find these in a game like Concordia and the the original Manhattan Project. So in my games, um, there's not changing turn order. I use clockwise turn order. I make it work so that the game doesn't need any rounds and instead contains its own natural resets, and that includes choices for players about when they're going to reset what they're doing. Like in Concordia, you choose when you're going to pull all your cards back in your hand. And uh, that's your own, your own tactical choice about when you do that. In Energy Empire, you decide when you're going to pull back your workers and generate energy. In Dwellings of Eldervale, the pullback turn is you're pulling back and as you're pulling back, that's when you use your tableau. So the, the more stuff you get out on the board, the more you're able to run those, those things going in your tableau. So combining things like tableau building with worker placement, area control with worker placement, looking at ways of having a non-static board. Um, so like Dwellings of Eldervale uses a modular hexagonal board that has a random arrangement. So every single time you play, that board is going to be different. Energy Empire um, doesn't use pure blocking. So as you place a worker, if you want to place on an occupied space, you can stack energy with it. Um, so that's an area where I, I take some of the norms of worker placement and I've twisted them to my own style. So a lot of conventional worker placements do include rounds. So everybody, they engage in the round, they go through their turn order, but at some point, everyone resets at the same time. None of my games do that. Uh, A lot of worker placements, there's kind of a one-to-one with place the worker and carry out the action and block that 
action so that no one else can do that exact same thing. Some, some other uh, designers games, you'll have multiple spots for some actions because you need more people to be able to do them. In my games, I've looked at other ways where it's not pure blocking, but instead there's incentives and disincentives for using different actions. So for example, in Energy Empire, it's that energy cost I mentioned, but in Dwellings of Eldervale, where you place on the board determines where your next units are going to be able to place. So there's a spatial adjacency relationship. Um, generally, the way that works, though there are tons of exceptions, is if I place a worker in one hex realm of the board and take a resource, the next worker I place has to be placed adjacent to that. Um, the game also has these special units that have special kind of movement. So if you have your wizard, your wizard can teleport to the other side of the board. If you have your dragon, your dragon can fly up to two spaces away. Um, another restriction is that as you place your first unit on the board, your first unit has to be placed in an unoccupied space. Um, your, your worker unit it, it doesn't have those kinds of special movement powers. But one of the things that can occur is though your first unit's placed in an unoccupied space, your subsequent units might crowd into occupied territories. In this game, in Dwellings of Eldervale, that's going to lead to battles. So fights break out when players are using the same realms. And so that creates a whole different dynamic of incentives and disincentives for how you go about placing your workers that takes it away from kind of the conventional, I take an action and block it so no one can use it kind of thing. Right. And you bring up a really cool point that worker placement is such an incredible canvas that you can paint in so many different directions. It's a wonderful foundation that you can build all these other things on top of it, whether it's area control or uh, tile laying or whatever you want to do. And so it's just a really cool place to start. And then, and then kind of, Hey, where can we go from here? What hasn't been done? What theme has it been done within this way? What kind of mechanisms do we normally see in narrative games, narrative driven games, you know, Ameritrash style games, if you want to call them that. And how can we bring that over here in this kind of worker placement style things? Uh, Robinson Crusoe is one, you know, one of my favorite games. It has all these really cool narrative, narrative things going on and storytelling but at the end of the day it's really just placing your worker trying to trying to do different things and build up resources and and you know survive right and so it's really cool what what directions worker placement uh, can go and so but you also talk a lot about like placing workers let's dive a little bit deeper into that what are some other really cool ways you've seen as far as placing workers you know because there's so many different styles like what what other ones have you used and then like what other ones have you like just taken note of like oh it's a really cool way to do it well, um, one, one design that I've worked on at one point um, where there's actually a kind of a spatial grid on which tiles get placed and there's different resources available um, on various pieces that fit onto this grid. And when you place your workers in, in that game, you're actually gaining all of the resources that you manage to place adjacent to. Um, but your, your, your worker itself doesn't occupy a single square. It occupies two squares. So that means you're potentially adjacent to up to six different other spaces, uh, orthogonally adjacent on that grid. Um, so you can look at different kinds of spatial ways to approach worker placement. Uh, there's another game that I've worked on where, um, 
you place and you're adjacent to multiple actions at the same time, but you only get to choose one of those actions that you're next to. And by, by taking that, that spot, you're potentially blocking actions that you're not actually intending to use. So you, you, you have to approach and consider different aspects other than just kind of this one-to-one correspondence between worker and action. Yeah, I feel like this is also a place where you can really adjust how mean your game is going to be. And so one one of the main things about worker placement is that if I place a worker in a spot, a lot of times you can't place there. Like I have beaten you to it. I got to go first this round and so I can place mine here and now you can't. Well, that can be a kind of a mean game, especially if there's not a ton of different options or not a ton of different ways kind of to mitigate certain things. And so I like what you did in Energy Empire. You're saying, okay, I'm going to place it here and you can too, but you're going to have to pay a little bit extra. And so it's going to cost you a little bit more, but you can still do that. Whereas I've seen other games that maybe had numbered workers. They had, you know, one to five. You have five workers and they all have a number. And if I place my five on a spot, then nothing else can go there. So, you, you know, I, I have to place something higher than. So if I place a one somewhere, then the next player has to place a two and the next player had to place a three. And mm-hmm. so if I place a five right off the bat, well, nobody else can go there. And so I can kind of really create a, a t- kind of a mean game, so to speak. So I think that's something else to take into account. It was like, how mean do you want your game to be? Like really think through that when you're starting off the design. And, and yeah, I, I tend to move away from that kind of, uh, the meanness that you're describing is kind of the being shut out kind of yeah. way of being mean. And so in my games, you tend not to be ever completely shut out of anything. It more just changes the consequences. Now, Dwellings of Elderville might sound kind of mean because, you know, you can choose to take an action, but it might trigger a battle. But in that game, the battles take place after you perform the action. So you never get truly blocked from the action, but there may be adverse consequences. And in that game, you potentially your units die and go to the underworld, but you will get them back when you go about your turn where you regroup and get all your things back. Um, But it comes at some degree of loss there. Yeah, I think it's just something else to uh, take into account as far as player psychology, just people psychology. People hate losing things more than they like gaining things. And so just realize that, that if somebody loses something, especially if it's kind of a take that kind of thing where they feel like they were building something up and then somebody took it away, like that that emotion is going to be pretty strong. It's going to be stronger than them gaining something. So just, you know, uh, think about that when you're designing the game and kind of the emotions you're trying to create. And that emotion is strong. And that's something we as designers can use. And, um, and I do use it in a few ways. I like tension in my games and I like the sense that you do have something to lose. There is a, Mm -hmm. there is a threat and a possibility of pain. Um, so I do have a few games, uh, coming up that, uh, you know, if you make some wrong moves or if you, if you fail in a certain amount of risk, you may, you may endanger lives of your, of your people or your units or whatever that may be. But that isn't always a result of the actions of other players. And so that's where in my games, I like to include something of an external threat, something that is, uh, that is a shared conflict or problem that everybody kind of has to deal with. Um, something akin to rising waters or marauding monsters where if you if you don't respond and don't take care, then that external threat is going to cause you some potential harm. 
And that usually relates to some of the dynamics where you're looking at how do you create tension? Um, how do you create a sense of urgency? But also, how do you create a sense where there are going to be tactical shifts? So as this threat becomes closer, or it, uh, it becomes more powerful, or it uh, in some way starts to interfere or interact with other aspects of the game, it then changes how you need to respond and what you need to do before it's too late. Yeah, and I think this is another place you can add some really cool decisions and interesting choices for the players to make. Because if, if you have this shared threat that everybody, you know, you have the monster at the gate, so to speak, and everybody needs to to do something to defeat it, but you want to do the minimum you can to like, if you, let's say you have to, you know, give up a certain number of resources. Well, you want to give up as few as possible because you want to make sure you have the resources to do other things. But if everybody thinks I'm going to give up hardly anything, if, you know, maybe nothing, and then so potentially we all fail because we were all being a little too greedy. And so you have that, that, that kind of tension of like, gosh, mm -hmm. I, I, we probably need to give three, but I'm only going to give one and hopefully somebody else gives four. <laughs> and you kind of have that really interesting thing. I think Champions of Vanguard is my favorite example of this, where you have the monsters coming and you, you know, kind of outside the, the village, so to speak, and, and you need to, uh, commit your workers, your dice to beating those. And if you don't, if you're not being Viking enough, you're not being brave enough, so to speak, then there's a, a detriment to you if you're not doing that, if you're trying to be a little bit selfish. And that's really thematic. So I think you can do some really cool thematic things as well with these external threats and kind of the way players interact or the, the bonuses they get or the detriments they get if they do or don't uh, take care of that threat. Uh, yeah, and I think I, I might have originally drawn it from Kingsburg, where you have the the monsters attack at the end of oh, each yeah. round, and mm -hmm. you have to devote enough, you know, military force to protect yourself. Um, and that's that's akin to in Game of Thrones, of course, both the game, the book, and the show, where there's always the threat of whatever's north of the wall is going to get you unless you devote at least a little bit of effort to defending that wall and defending the, uh, the seven kingdoms. And uh, so with Energy Empire, that became the global impact cards where there's always this threat, this upcoming threat where some part of your environment is going to be scored, either your oceans, the forests, or the air. And unless you do some science to take a peek at the card and know what's upcoming, you are potentially going to get caught off guard. Um, and then that also leads into the late global impact cards where you get things like, you know, nuclear fallout and radiation and all kinds of extremely harmful things. And in uh, dwellings of Eldervale, you have these giant elemental monsters marching around the land that they they cause trouble. And if you're going to be going near them, you're going to have to consider that you're going to have to do some battle with them and you'll have to be prepared for that. Or you're going to have to just accept that I can go over there, but that guy's not going to survive. Yeah, absolutely. Let's uh, switch gears just a little bit. Let's talk about scoring. There's so many different ways to score in these games. There's different in-game triggers and things like that. You know, with side, it's kind of a race game. You're racing to a certain number of stars to end the game, and then it's based on money at the end. Some games are just, we're going to play 10 rounds, and, and everybody gets the exact same number of turns, and, that's, and at the end of those 10 rounds, we're going to see who wins. And so what are some really cool ways that you've used uh, to score, and maybe some other ways that just from other games that you're like, this is, this is cool. I, I wish I had thought of this myself. Well, I'm generally a fan of point salad type scoring. Um, and within, within that point salad, I want the kinds of scoring that's going to reward you 
for doing the cool things in the game. And um, I, I also like scoring where everybody needs to interact in some way with most aspects of the game. If not, yeah, no, real quick, real quick, explain point salad just for in case oh, somebody's never heard sure. of that term. Yeah. So, um, so say for example, I'll, I'll take energy empire, for example, you're going to score points for your tableau cards. Every tableau card has points on it. You're going to score points for the energy dice that you've acquired in the game. You're going to score points for how far you've climbed the UN track. You're going to score points for how clean your environment is. And you're going to score hidden points based on the achievements you've accomplished. So you get all these different categories that allow you to approach victory in different ways in different games. But they also create uh, dynamics in terms of you can't just do one thing over and over and hope to succeed. You do need to branch out and explore different ways. With Dwellings of Eldervale, um, I've drawn a little bit from the Concordia scoring in that there are different elements that are uh, part of different aspects of the game. So you can build dwellings in different elemental realms, uh, like an air realm or a forest realm, and you can acquire cards uh, that are associated with different elements. And at the end of the game, the score of each of those dwellings and each of those cards is multiplied times where you got to on the appropriate track. So for example, all of your fire cards are worth how high you climbed on the fire track. All of your fire dwellings, dwellings in fiery realms, they count the same value, however high you got on the fire track. So that multiplying thing creates an interesting dynamic where every, every player in the game is going to be trying to achieve different levels of success in these different elemental tracks, potentially competing with each other, but also potentially hoping to just make more of what they've already accomplished. Yeah, and I think having kind of a more point salad style game also allows you as a designer to kind of hide or kind of cover up some of the things that maybe aren't super balanced in the game. When you have points coming from so many different places, you can not have to worry too as much about the balancing of everything, right? If, if you're only getting points from two or three things, then you got to make sure those two or three things are as balanced as they possibly can. But if you got points coming from 15 different sources, well, that, that kind of hides some of the, uh, maybe some inconsistencies with the design overall. And then that aren't necessarily worth, you know, the, the extra year of development that it would take to figure out perfect, total perfect balance. Like now we can, you know, we can kind of let some of the things slide. So we don't call it hiding, but instead we would, <laughs> we would call it self-balancing. There you go. It's a self-balancing. It's self-balancing <laughs> because everyone had the opportunity to go for those same things um, yep. for the most part. And so what you find is you find um, you find ranges of value that things you do want to keep in check as a designer. But as long as you're creating a real diverse set of opportunities for how players approach things, they are all making these choices within the same range of opportunity. Um, another thing to, that I always try to include in games in order to make um, to prevent some of that analysis paralysis that can come around endgame is hidden scoring. So some kind of hidden scoring I find is pretty important to keep the grind out of the late game. Otherwise, you'll have players trying to stall or players who are potentially in position to do king making where they take a move that's 
it's not tactically um, or strategically beneficial to them, but it helps a player who is maybe trailing the leader. Um, and so having some kind of hidden scoring takes that away because, well, you're, you're still not quite sure who's winning as the end approaches. And one player might have a whole lot of hidden scoring another player might have none. And so then the, the apparent score is a little different from what the actual score ends up being. Yeah, that's definitely something you want to take into account if you have in-game triggers as opposed to a certain number of rounds. So if you do 10 rounds, okay, it is what it is. But if you have in-game triggers, a lot of times players, if they know kind of perfect information, they're going to say, oh, I don't want to do this because I need I need two more turns. And, and you know, they'll, they'll postpone a, an in-game trigger trying to min-max every single possible point they, that, that they can. And so that can help, that'll grind a game to a halt there at the mm-hmm. end. So a game that's supposed to take an hour just take just took 90 minutes because everybody at the end was like min-maxing every little last detail. And so that's something to, to take into account is have that uh, in-game scoring that does have some hidden information. That way players aren't as apt to do that. And if you do have end-game triggers, as several of my games do, I create an incentive to end the game. So yeah. in, in both Dwellings of Eldervale and Energy Empire, if you trigger the end of the game, you're going to go around the table one more time. Everybody gets one more turn and then you will get that last turn. And that's your reward. Your reward yeah. is to, to have it end with you and nobody gets to do more. And a lot of times that means that somebody else could have ended the game and didn't. So there, there's an interesting dynamic there in terms of part of your tactics, part of your strategy is knowing when to end it. Yeah, for sure. I love that mechanism. That's the same thing I'd used for my space game, the Final Flick tier, is, you know, get that incentive. You get that extra turn that nobody else gets. And I think that's a really cool, cool way to do things. All right. As we kind of head towards the, the finish line of this one, let's talk a little bit about randomness in worker placement games. I find that this is a really cool place for for design to have some, some awesome opportunities to do different things. Uh, and so tell me about what you've done as far as adding randomness to a game. You talked a little bit about risk a moment ago, and I think you've done some really cool things in building, dwellings of Elderville with having risk and also some randomness. So let's talk about randomness and how it kind of plays an interesting role in worker placement games. Yeah, so I'll focus on Dwellings of Eldervale. Probably, I would guess a lot of listeners are familiar with Energy Empire, but if they're not, they can check that out. I think we might have talked about some of that on our on our first interview too. Yep. But um, with Dwellings of Eldervale, there's randomness in terms of the setup. So you have a board that's that's randomly arranged that consists of different hexagonal tiles that have actions on them and and varying resources. The, the actual resources themselves are on resource tokens um, that fall within a certain range based on the type of element. So each element's associated with two given resources in the game. And so if you, you go into a, um, a chaos realm, for example, you're pretty confident you're going to be able to get potions and gems on these tokens. Um, and then if you were to go into an earth realm, it's, it might be tools and gems. But this, uh, this variability in how many there are going to be in the tokens creates an ongoing dynamic that you'll never have what we talked about previously, where there's a, there's a, there's a perfect and best spot on the board that everybody knows about. You just got to use that one spot. Instead, you get, you get dynamics there. Dice are an interesting thing. Um, 
in a lot of Euro games, the tendency is to approach changes in cards so that you'll have different availability of different cards. They'll have different values. And, and by their very nature, cards with different kinds of effects and powers do have different values and will have different values to different players. So there's randomness there in card avail availability. But with dice, um, in Dwellings of Eldervale, you really do go into dice battles. And these dice battles use a new battle system that I call, um, it's an underdog battle system. It's where no matter how many dice you have, you can still always lose. And this, this is going to be somewhat controversial when this game hits the market because um, players who play, you know, Euro style games or games with Euro mechanics, they might be a little more reluctant to try something out where you're, you have a chance of losing a battle because of a dice roll. But losing a battle is sometimes a, a strategically advantageous thing to do. You do get rewarded for winning. There's a glory track for winning. You get, you get points, you get gold, you get good stuff. Losing, you go to the underworld. And as your units go to the underworld, they're, they're going to gain swords. And these swords are a source of revenge. Um, there are a variety of uses for swords. There is generally a sense that losing battles is not as good as winning battles. However, the idea is that you want to not overinvest in your battle. So um, you have choices about which units you can involve in the battle and which kinds of resources you can, you can put in there, whether you're going to spend some spell cards or other things. But ultimately, you want to win the battle with the least amount of cost as possible. And so if you invest a small amount and you lose the battle, you also lost less too. So that is a part of um, Dwellings of Eldervale. And it's interesting to watch uh, some players absolutely and totally embrace the idea that you have worker placement, you have tableau building, you have area control, and then you're going to roll some dice and fight some monsters. And you're going to have these clashes with other players. Um, some players are going to look at that, just take one look at it and go, nope, I'm a Euro player. I'm not coming anywhere near that. For those players, I have other Euro games that are going to be coming out. Um, you know, this game is more, it's more of what we call the transatlantic uh, style game, which uh, comes out of a conversation I had with uh, Randy Hoyt. Uh, Foxtrot games um, years ago. So uh, Transatlantic is a substitute for a hybrid between the Ameritrash Euro archetypes. And those archetypes are, they're very real in, in the gaming community. As much as we think we've evolved on, there's still some players who just, they just don't want to cross over. Um, more likely, it seems from Euro type players who are a little reluctant to get into too much randomness of, of various kinds. Yeah, I really like that that uh, that phrasing though. Transatlantic. That's a really cool cool phrase. Hopefully, hopefully that'll show up more. But I mean, more and more, you don't have to worry too much about making a game for everybody. There are so many games on the market. I feel like if you try to make a game for everybody, you're just making a game for nobody, and it's not really going to land the way you want it to. And so, just make make the game you want to make, and and it's okay if it's only for you know people that love this kind of game and not trying to not trying to catch everybody. I feel like that's a, a dangerous path to design a game for everybody. And so it's just something else to be aware of. Yeah. And um, if only 100,000 people like this game and buy it, <laughs> I, I will not be disappointed. 
That's yeah, nowhere, I think you'd be doing okay. That's nowhere near the full market. Um, but uh, yeah, I wouldn't be too disappointed. And really, if you're going to make something special and unique, somebody's going to hate it. Um, yeah. That's that's an inevitability. And if you're going to make the same old thing that somebody's already done, somebody's going to hate that too. Right. Um, so there's there's always this kind of uh, can't win um, uh, with with certain people. So you, you always are you you try to make the game as best you can, and you you may have a target audience. And for this for Dwellings of Eldervale, the target audience is people who want to play with some Euro mechanics, and they don't mind battling with dice. Well, Luke, man, this has been awesome. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts or like what would you tell somebody who's maybe working on a worker placement game or thinking about one? What would you say to them? I will tell them the our catchphrase for the League of Game Makers, the best games are yet to be made. Yeah, absolutely. Well, real quick, you got a game on Kickstarter right now. We've been talking about this whole time, Dwellings of Elder Vale. So tell me like, give me the, the one minute, two minute synopsis, the elevator pitch about your Kickstarter. Yeah, so Dwellings of Elder Vale is a worker placement, engine building um, tableau area control game that involves your faction going into this lost world, hunting for treasures, um, finding its secrets, summoning your dragon, your wizard, and your warrior, and going through this fantasy world and eventually trying to dwell there, trying to build your, your, your new world. It involves uh, taking rooftops that you actually place right on top of the meeples. So the meeples transform into little houses. Um, it's going to have miniatures. It's going to have game trays. It's going to be so tricked out. And it has all kinds of different factions of individual player powers. It's just um, an absolutely amazing project that anyone would dream to publish it. And I'm just so lucky that Breaking Games is. Awesome. Man, I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, good luck with Dwellings of Eldervale and all the other cool games that are uh, coming out next year and, and everything else you got going on right now. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?